Let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that with your spirit's help, we would see by faith and taste this glory that we have sung about. And we pray that that might happen by you speaking to us here in this word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear its truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the midterm election season is here. Joy. We'll listen to what candidates say, watch what they do, and eventually we'll cast a vote to the one we believe is best for all. But how much trust is there even in the people that we vote for. Wouldn't it be nice if there was some way that that the best candidate, even the best candidate to be put forward, wouldn't just make promises, but could actually miraculously demonstrate to everyone that they can actually make a difference in our world. And they can be trusted. If that were possible, many people might be surprised by who doesn't run, and who they actually end up voting for. Life for every one of us, however, is more than the city or country we live in. We all face trials that no political candidate can solve. There are deeply felt needs that we all feel that they can't even touch. And eventually we'll all face death. We're all looking for some kind of savior. And if it's not a politician we look to, then it's a counselor or spouse or doctor or someone else, and they all fall short. But if we turn to the Bible, we get an eyewitness account of someone who saw what Jesus did and heard what Jesus said. And in our passage today, what Jesus says and does are miraculous signs that he is God's Messiah. He's the one that God puts forward, and he's the one who's going to come, because he's the Messiah, and bring us life with God. The life that we long for, the life that God promised. But not everyone casts their faith in Jesus. Because Jesus isn't the Savior they expect, nor is he the one they're comfortable with. John writes so that we don't make that mistake. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find it on page 942. It's 942, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller ones are the verses. And this morning we're looking at all of chapter 2. For context, we're obviously right here at the beginning of John. And in chapter 1, we met John the Baptist. Everyone believes he's a prophet, and they want to know whether or not he's actually the Messiah. John denies it and points everyone to someone greater. And then Jesus shows up, and John testifies, he's the one. And then John's followers start following Jesus, and they testify, he's the one. And then in today's passage, Jesus miraculously demonstrates that truth. And here's what John wants us to do with it. Entrust your life to Jesus to gain true life in God's presence. Entrust your life to Jesus to gain true life in God's presence. Not in this world, not in the things of this world, but in Jesus and the world to come. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along and apply this passage, there are two events that help us first see Jesus clearly, 
This is in verses 1 through 11. And second, hear Jesus rightly. Verses 12 through 25. So see Jesus clearly. And hear Jesus rightly. If we can look at these events and do that, then I believe we will entrust ourselves to him and find life in him. So first, see Jesus clearly. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, Jesus is at a wedding about nine miles north of his hometown. So, presumably, this is some relative or, or, or friend of the family. And that's why his mother, Mary, is there also. And without any cultural context, it can all sound quite funny. Starting with the central problem here, Mary runs to Jesus and says, We're out of wine. To which Jesus seems to say, That's not my problem. Why are you coming to me? To which you might read this and imagine Mary looking at her son with a mother's smile, while at the same time saying firmly to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then she walks away like she knows she's getting her way. And so you might just imagine Jesus sort of just shaking his head, sighing and saying, okay, fill the jars. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of strange. It's a, it's a funny scene. But I don't think that's how it went down. The cultural and biblical context here can give us great understanding to the significance of this event. Much like today, weddings were one of the most important events in a couple's life. And also very important to the community they were in. So this was a huge celebration for the town. The wedding would begin in the evening with a feast run late into the night where the couple would eventually be led by torchlight through their front door. And then rather than going on their honeymoon, they spent the next week hosting an open house party at their home for the whole community. So Ben and Amy, if you guys want to change your plans, <laughs> we'll change ours. But it was, a, it was a great week for the groom and bride because they were sort of king and queen for the week. And sometimes they actually wore a crown to, to demonstrate that. Their, their word could be taken as law among the people. It just, they got their wish. Because this was a massively huge event in their life. This was a huge celebration, a joyful celebration, and one of the supreme experiences of life for an impoverished group of people. Now, given all that... Playing host at a wedding like this, it was an incredibly important event for the host as well. Especially in a Middle Eastern culture where hospitality is taken so seriously. Guests and hosts are either going to be honored or dishonored. And very important to this particular event is the wine. Now why? Well, in the Bible, again and again, wine is a sign of prosperity and blessing. So, covenant faithfulness to God was met with an abundance of wine in Israel. The loss of wine was evidence of God's curse on his people. And the promise of Israel's restoration included images of mountains dripping with wine and flowing down the hills. And so when Jews are joyfully celebrating the marriage union and they want to communicate or attach to the union the idea of prosperity and blessing upon this couple, well, wine is going to be a staple. And if the wine runs out, well, not only is that a bad look symbolically, but it's a great embarrassment to the couple. This is, this is dishonoring to the guests. Did you not make provisions? So when Mary, the mother of Jesus, tells him they don't have any wine, it's not like she just loves wine. She's feeling deeply for the couple, for the hosts. 
Now, it's interesting that she runs to Jesus with this problem, isn't it? I think it's remarkable. She, she believes that Jesus can do something right there in that moment about having no wine. What did she know? Had he quietly done something around the house, miracles before? She's like, you can, you can fix this. Does she just believe what was told about her son? We, we don't know, but somehow she knows Jesus can fix this. Now, his response to this is also quite interesting and worth examining, especially since it can sound disrespectful. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? I mean, if we're honest, that, that doesn't sound great on our ears. But I wonder in some ways if that's not really an indictment on our sinful culture. Right? That somehow the term woman could be heard in a derogatory sense at all. It seems to, to be a problem. In their culture, woman wasn't just a respectful term like ma'am or madam, but it was endearing. And that's more in line with the Bible's view. In fact, brothers, when we speak or hear of the word woman, there needs to be an inner sense of thankfulness and honor attached to that in us if we're going to match the way that Peter instructs husbands to think about their wives. Or if we want to match Jesus' heart. Because it's clear that when Jesus uses the same term from the cross, he's speaking to his mother with great affection there. So we might hear disrespect, but evidently I think the text shows us that what Mary heard communicated that Jesus was willing to do what she asked. He responds this way. And in something about his heart or what he's saying communicates, I will do this. Still, his answer is a bit mysterious to us. When Jesus asks his mother about what this has to do with him, that may be a gentle reminder that when it comes to his ministry, he takes his marching orders from his heavenly father. And at this point, he says... His hour has not yet come. That hour will come up again and again in the Gospel of John. It will become more clear what he means. But basically, the hour refers to his sacrificial death on the cross when he accomplished God's plan of salvation for sinners. Jesus lived his whole life under the burden of this hour. And there's a sense in which he's gently asking his mother not to rush that hour before the time. Now, it's also true that there's a lot of work to do in preparation for that hour. And that work will shed light on who he is and his glory, which begins right here at this event. Look at verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. These purification jars in verse 6 were used for Old Covenant purification rites. This is what made people clean so that they, they weren't in a state where they couldn't worship God in the temple. And so we'll come back to the significance of these ceremonial jars in just a minute. But the jars are filled to the brim. So this is 120 to 180 gallons of water being miraculously transformed into wine. So this party is going to keep going. And when the servants take this wine to the head waiter, he tastes it and honors the groom saying... Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. You see, normally the host would bring out the best wine in the beginning. And then when people were too drunk to know the difference, they would bring out the inferior, that cheaper batch of wine. So before we deal with any problems there, just look at what's happening in the story. We go from, they don't have any wine, to... You have kept the fine wine until now. And they have it in abundance. This was filled to the brim. So when Jesus is first revealing himself and his glory, so the kind of savior he is, 
He's doing in the context of joy and celebration with overabundance. Jesus is making his blessings overflow. These are happy times. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss that. I know that, that this could raise questions for some of us in regards to why Jesus would perform this miracle. And clearly, drunkenness is condemned in the Bible. and it's, it's foolish for any of us to ignore how destructive alcohol can be in a person's life. How it can affect whole families. But just because something can be abused doesn't mean that it shouldn't be used at all. And Jesus is using it as an important symbol right at the time that he's beginning his ministry. Right at the time that John has said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John indicates in verse 11 that his disciples understand what's happening. And we should too. Look there. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, that's the key verse in this passage. So, let's break it down. In the gospel, miracles are called signs. John wants us to know that the miracles that Jesus does aren't done for their own sake. For, for what it does for the people that benefit from the miracle. That's not what the miracles are about. They point us beyond the miracle to something even more significant. They're all about the one doing the miracle. They say something about him. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who can give us life. He's the one bringing God's kingdom to earth. All of God's promises and blessings are coming through him. And you enter into his kingdom through faith. It's believing in him. Or you could say, putting your trust in him. And that's what the disciples are doing here. They see the sign and they entrust themselves to Jesus. They believed in him. Why? Well, because something about the sign revealed Jesus' glory. And that's language from Exodus 34 again, where God revealed his glory to Moses at the giving of his law. When he was entering into a relationship with his, his people under the old covenant, Moses said, show me your glory, and, and he, he got a glimpse of it. And remember, John has begun this gospel saying in chapter 1 that, that he, like Moses, has observed the glory of God in Jesus. And that's not just the Mount of Transfiguration, though it is that. It it includes the entire ministry of Jesus, clearly starting right here. So how is it that this is actually revealing Jesus' glory? Well, there are two ways. First, only God can do something like this. And only God has, like when he turned the water of the Nile into blood. But in that case, it was judgment. The transformation there included judgment. This transformation is about life and blessing. And the other reason this sign reveals Jesus' glory is because of the nature of the sign itself. It's consistent with God's promises of blessing that would ultimately come through the Messiah and not the law. I mean, it's no accident that John notes that the jars that were filled were, were, were used in Old Covenant purification rites. Again, these are what people were using to be ceremonial clean before God. But it was just ceremonial. These kinds of purification rites did nothing to change their hearts. It doesn't solve the the real problem of, of sin. Jesus is bringing about something as superior as wine is to water. Actually, it's, it's even superior to other wine. This is like what John said in chapter 1 when he said, In the gospel, God is pouring out grace upon grace. So the law graciously provided a way for God to dwell with his people, in the midst of his people, so they could worship him. But it was insufficient. Because they didn't have their hearts purified to keep the law. So they were always needing to be made ceremonially clean. But in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36... God promises a new covenant which is better. It is different than the old covenant. We actually get new hearts. God's spirit cleanses us from our guilt of sin and changes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that loves him. 
that wants to obey him. When Jesus uses the purification jars to turn water into wine, he is miraculously declaring, demonstrating that he's bringing about this new covenant relationship. And John points out in verse 11 again that he does it at a wedding, which is significant. Because Hosea 2 speaks of God's new covenant relationship with his people in terms of a marriage. Isaiah 54 speaks of the Messiah's arrival in terms of a wedding banquet. So to perform his first miracle and introduce his ministry of God's abundant blessing on the world at a wedding feast is entirely appropriate and significant. But it's not just a wedding, it's in Galilee. Which is where Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier that a great light would dawn in the world. This is a despised and rejected part of Israel. The northern part where Galilee is is, is, is looked down upon as being less serious about their religion. It's, it's full of spiritual half-breeds. But God is communicating that his grace comes to sinners. And it's no accident that Jesus does his first sign of joyful celebration and abundance in a place like Galilee. He's communicating to us the kind of Savior he is and who he's for. Church, the gospel is worth celebrating. This is worth getting excited about. Jesus is worth rejoicing in like people do at a wedding. Do you see Jesus that way? I mean this for everyone. Christian, do you see Jesus this way? Is he this kind of savior to you? Do you you come to church with this kind of heart? Jesus isn't a a, a somber or stoic-like Savior here. He understood that he was bringing something joyous into the world. It's no accident that God wants him to do his first miracle at a wedding. And so for all the pain in this world and the spiritual battles that we face, the, the long struggle of life with all of its needs, Christ invites us to celebrate with him in the midst of it. Not that we're called to live life out of touch with reality. Life is still hard. So there there are reasons for Christians to to mourn. We we should mourn as we we already have prayed with our sister who lost her grandfather. But we don't mourn without hope. And we suffer, yet we rejoice. Even though we are dying outwardly, We're being inwardly renewed day by day. Salvation has come. And we have assurance of life with Christ in the gospel. So we're like the head waiter in the story. Right? We've been given a taste of that new life to come. So we can give thanks for all the good gifts of this world. Kind of like the inferior wine of God's common grace that we experience every day. And yet we know that eventually... That's going to run out. Nothing in this world can completely fill us. But on top of all the blessings that we do experience in this world, God gives us Christ and the hope to come. And we're going to have it in abundance. We're going to have life in God's presence forever. So Christian, rejoice. I fear that sometimes churches can fall into a religious ditch here. And we can let church suck out all the life of the church. Worship, religion, begins to feel like a heavy burden of duty and condemnation. Now, the other side of that ditch is a lack of reverence for God and a humble recognition of our need for repentance. But I just want to say right here, church, let's look at this first sign and see an aspect of Jesus' glory And know this is who we worship. Let's enjoy him. Let's take joy in our life together as a church. Let's foster unity that we have in Christ. Nurture the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit. And so attend regularly. Practice hospitality. And as Jonathan often instructs us, let's sing joyfully. 
Jesus has come to give us life and life to the full, and it's all by grace. And so it's available for everyone here. And this first sign, Jesus is saying, this is where life is at. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. And I just want to testify as someone who just sought life in, in many different idols of this world, this is where it's at. Jesus is life. And yet notice this. The servants saw the sign, but they're not said to see his glory. It's only the disciples who seem to see that. As if it only can be perceived by faith. We must believe, and not everyone does. Because for whatever reason, we believe that water is better than wine. In other words, we we don't see ourselves as sinners and Jesus is the kind of savior we need. And so we, we, we look for things, life in this world as if this world is good enough for us. And we trust ourselves to, to find that life. And as if it will, and believe as it will never go out. I just want to encourage us all to be honest. The good gifts of this world always get old, don't they? I mean, I, I love steak, uh, chicken wings. But, but I don't know that I could eat it every night for the rest of my life. And one day that will be true of your sin. Even the ones that you love right now. It will be true of life altogether in this world. You need to see Jesus as the Savior you need. And so you need to look at these signs and hear what he says. Which brings us to the second call to entrust Jesus with our life. Hear Jesus rightly. Hear Jesus rightly. Look at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now again, some cultural and biblical context is helpful here. The Jewish, Jewish Passover was the biggest holiday of the year. It's when God's people remember how he had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land to dwell with them and bless them as his people. And so every Passover, people would make this pilgrim, pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember God's salvation. Some people believe that a much smaller Jerusalem back then could, could swell to over 2 million people at this time. So there's a great build-up to this day, right? It's, it's kind of like Christmas for us. It's, it's not just one day. It's a, it's a happy season. This is a, this is a festive time. And just like our own Christmas season, people found ways to make lots of money off of it. People come to Jerusalem to make sacrifices to God in the temple, but it's difficult to bring all of your livestock on a long journey like that for many of them. So, so they have to purchase animals when they arrive. And when they do, they're going, to, they're going to pay inflated prices for those animals. Because people know you need them. Not only that, but they have to pay professional inspectors to make sure their sacrifice is going to be acceptable in the temple. And these inspectors were so good that they not only recognized which animals were clean and unclean, but they could actually tell whether or not one day your animal would become unclean. And so you'd have to go back and buy another animal. And because local currencies had to be changed into the currency for the temple tax, the money changers also saw an opportunity. And the exchange fees became excessive. It was said that a whole day's wages could be spent on exchanging money. It's almost like buying food at an airport, right? You, you're there, you're stuck there, can't go anywhere else, but you got to eat. And so you're going to pay airport prices. That, that's what's going on here, except it's happening in the temple. 
That's happening in the place where people are supposed to meet God and to worship Him, to enjoy His presence. And so when Jesus walks into the temple, He's not in a festive mood. This is no longer a scene of joy and celebration, but of judgment. And before we hear Jesus speak in this passage, we see him in a way that might surprise us. He makes a whip out of cords and drives everyone and their animals out of the temple. Just imagine him, consumed with zeal, taking this money and just dumping it and then flipping tables. And telling those same people, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Again, this picture of Jesus sometimes throws people off. Some scholars even seem to apologize for Jesus, pointing out that it it doesn't say that he hit any person or animal with the whip. Because isn't Jesus gentle and lowly? Isn't that what he says about his heart? Isn't God a God of love? The answer is yes and yes. He is gentle and lowly. God is love. And Jesus is God in the flesh. But we must remember that good and righteous anger is the overflow of love. It's a deep love for something good that creates a hatred for something evil. And so as gentle and lowly as Jesus is, he's equally strong and just. Sometimes in ways that make sinners feel uncomfortable. But we put ourselves and others in great danger when we domesticate Jesus. Yes, he's a lamb, but he's also a lion. Scripture uses both images for Jesus. Peter encountered Jesus like this when he tempted Jesus to forsake the cross and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. When Jesus saw how the Pharisees heaped burdens upon people with a damning version of the law, he called them blind hypocrites, snakes, brood of vipers, and warned them of the coming judgment. And on the day of judgment, Revelation 6, 16 says that people will call for the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb flows from a love for God and God's people. And that wrath and love are both seen even more clearly at the cross. Nothing reveals God's love for sinners and his hatred for sin more than the cross. Because when our sin was placed on Jesus, God had to turn his face away from him and crush his own son. But he did it in love that we might find forgiveness. So we shouldn't apologize for Jesus here. He's acting perfectly consistent with a love for God and people, just as verses 16 and 17 explain. Jesus is consumed with a zeal for God's house. The the place where God dwells with his people, the place where people can enjoy God. And yet that place has become all about money. People are being taken advantage of. And so no one's really able to worship at all here. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. One will serve the other. He understands that money's a proxy for what you value in your heart or what you think you need, like comfort and security. And so what people do with their money, how we think about it, says a lot about what we worship where your trust lies, where your hope is, even what you love. And that reality is damning evidence against the religious people in the temple. And therefore, it's something that we have to be on guard against as a church. A love of money 
and the things it can buy can make pastors see godliness as a means of financial gain. And so they'll build the church around what attracts a crowd based on what they learn from the marketplace. But it's not just pastors. Even the worshipers might go to a certain church so that God will bless them. They might worship in order to get. It's all false worship that God hates. And so I just want to ask, should we even take up an offering each week? Is is that getting in the way of worship? I think, yes, we should. Uh, It's a practice that runs throughout the whole Bible, including the early church, but there's a big difference here in the text. So when we take up an offering, we are not saying that in order for you to get a blessing from God, you have to give something. We're not saying that in order for you to be loved and accepted by God, you have to give something. I can also tell you that the pastors here aren't trying to get rich, and a million-dollar gift today won't change the financial state of anybody on staff here. Our, Our church budget is approved by the church. I can't write checks for the church. And tonight at our members' meeting, we'll look at how the church money is being spent. We're giving to build God's kingdom, not ours. So the big difference between our offering and what's happening in the text is this. We don't give so that we can worship. We give as an act of worship. And it's worship that Jesus is concerned with here. His actions remind us that we not only want this place to be a place of joy in God, but also a place where God is revered. Where God's presence is recognized. And money isn't always the only distraction. Worship, the awareness of God's presence, can easily be be lost in a service that's more geared for us and our entertainment than it is for God and obedience to Him. That's why we always try to put more emphasis on the content of our services, services than we do anything else. And beyond the worship of our church, we need to think about our own lives because worship gets corrupted by sinful hearts. So it's, it's good to look at the temple of our own lives here, where, where God wants to be worshipped. And so ask yourself, what if the temple Jesus walked into today was the temple of your life? What would he do? Do you know right now that there's something that he would have to turn over? Would he have to clean house? If so, just take a moment right now to confess that to God. And tell someone else today, get help from the church to get it out of your life. Because if you don't, Jesus will on the day of judgment. That's part of what's foreshadowed here in Jesus' wrath. Jesus is consumed with a zeal for God's house. And the disciples think of Psalm 69, 9 as they see Jesus act. In Psalm 69, David's the king of God's people, and he's in great distress because zeal for God's house, God's name, God's people has consumed him. He's so passionate about God's glory that the insults that people hurl at God are being hurled at him. David says, because of my zeal for your house, a zeal that consumes me, a passion that eats me up, I am despised. Jesus embodies that zeal. You get a picture right here of someone who's just so overcome that he's willing to interrupt the biggest event of the year in the central place of the city and stop everything. You know, don't get too familiar with this story if you've heard it before. This is wild. He's consumed with a passion for God's glory and it leads him to act boldly in judgment. Now, boldness comes in different forms. We don't often see Jesus act in this manner. But as, as a follower, if you're a Christian, do, do you ever act as boldly? 
a passion for God's glory among us should on occasion lead you to take risks for the gospel, suffer for the gospel, be rejected by others, or even strongly rebuke others like Jesus does here. And maybe it it leads you to take a public stand for righteousness like Jesus does here. Evangelism isn't just born out of compassion, but it should be born out of a zeal for God's name. He's worthy of people's praise. The missionary Henry Martin wrote in his diary, I could not endure existence if Jesus were not glorified. And that concern drove him to invest his life in preaching the gospel in the Muslim world. As John Piper has written, missions exist because worship doesn't. Zeal for God's name should compel us in this way. And yet it's so easy, just speaking personally, to sit back in the comforts of the material blessings of life in this world and enjoy what's become like an acceptable Christian cocoon of indifference inside cultural Christianity. I loathe that I'm capable of that. And I'm really thankful for our church covenant, which won't let me remain there. We promise to be faithful, and we promise to be holy and evangelistic and generous and hospitable because of the grace of God. This is the life that we've been called to by by trusting him. So let's take it seriously. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover, the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of the temple. And we have his spirit. Jesus' zeal for God's house will take him all the way to the cross. It's there that he begins to create a new temple in us. It's there at the cross that Jesus cleanses us with his own blood. As judgment falls on him. That's where Jesus sees this going. Look at verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Now, understandably, at an, at an event this large, at this kind of wild action, people want an explanation. What makes you think you can do this, Jesus? Give us a sign from God. And Jesus says something amazing. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And their response is completely logical. This temple took 46 years to build. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, maybe they should have been able to step back and ask some deeper questions than that. Right? Couldn't someone there have seen that Jesus didn't mean to be taken literally here? But they don't do that. And I don't think we can blame them. People are often stuck with how they view things. And that strongly influences the way they hear things. So they're at odds with him and reject what he says. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, again, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope that if something sounds off or strange here, that you'll maintain an open mind and not so quickly write off the gospel and the seriousness of what the Bible says, of Jesus' claims about himself. Life and death are in these claims. John plainly tells us in verse 21 that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Now again, the temple is the place where God's presence was said to dwell. But Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God with us. And to dwell with God in the temple, something had to die on your behalf. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So when he says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days, he's referring to his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. He's telling us about the the way into God's presence. 
And so later in verse 22, when he's raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. So Jesus' words get put on the same level as the scriptures because he's proven true. And yet everyone else there was so sure of their interpretation, being so logical that it is. And they end up being wrong about Jesus. That ought to bring caution to the skeptic, patience to the doubter here today, that eventually Jesus is proven right. Now, to be sure, logic is really important. I don't want to dish on logic. You shouldn't trust anything that's illogical. But that said, we often have an insufficient amount of information, and we come to our conclusions too quickly, thinking that we have enough. So we have to be a little humble about what we think we know. And yet, here's the good news of the gospel, or regarding the gospel. God's word is a sufficient word. Okay? You won't have all your questions answered completely. Your questions answered sufficiently. And you can trust that Jesus is God's son, that he came and lived a perfect life, that he died for your sins on the cross, and your sins were paid for if you will trust in him and repent of sin. You can be forgiven by God, justified in his sight, and have life in, in his presence. You can trust that because of what Jesus says here in verse 19. He's been raised from the dead. That makes everything else, he says, enough. The resurrection should have the same effect on us as it does on the disciples. That's why John's writing, this sign is for us. If Jesus died and remained in the grave, honestly, you should just try to figure out life without the Bible. Because I, I can tell you, after, after years of study, the whole Bible is connected. It, it's not like other things where you can go, well, I'll take a little bit of this, and I'll take a little bit of that. It, it, it's all dependent and intertwined. It's all connected. So if the resurrection isn't true, just go find whatever truth you could find in here from some other system that hopefully is more consistent. But the historical evidence is astounding and clear. Jesus is alive. And the Bible's claims are trustworthy. If you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you at the door. But I would plead with you, put your faith in him. Surrender your life to him. And if you've done that, continue to submit your life to him. Submit your feelings on a daily basis to what the Bible says. Now, I know that idea is radically countercultural today. Some will ridicule that, but you won't regret it. Because if you'll do that, your life will belong to God and you're in his hands, which you can trust more than your own. Look at verse 23, and we'll conclude with this. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, For he himself knew what was in man. Clearly not everyone believes in Jesus. But many do. Many trusted him that day. And still, it's unclear whether or not faith was superficial or not. Because Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. He sees what's inside people. Now, compare this key verse to the one in verse 11. We're meant to read these things together and compare the events together. So whereas people needed Jesus to reveal himself to them so that we put our trust in him for life, he doesn't need us to reveal ourselves to him. He knows what's in us. And left to ourselves, it's judgment. See Jesus Let his glory be revealed to you, and you will have life and blessing and abundance. But if you lean on yourself and what's inside you, he sees, and it's judgment. 
Jesus knows and understands the hearts of people better than we understand ourselves. As much as we think we see and understand things clearly, and even dare to question God and judge him, the truth is we've got to learn to distrust ourselves in order that we find life in Christ. If we don't, we'll miss the sign. We won't see him clearly. We won't hear him rightly. Jesus won't look like a savior that gives life or sound like a savior we're comfortable with because he calls us to give our lives to him and repent. And that goes against everything inside of us in our natural condition. We're naturally much more likely to trust what sounds right to us and give ourselves to what we desire than to trust anything or anyone else for life. And it seems so natural and right that we would do that. I mean, who can you trust more than yourself? What can you trust more than your feelings? But if you could see God, if you were in his presence, and you could see what he sees in you, You wouldn't trust yourself. You would be skeptical of those desires. In fact, when it comes to your own perception of yourself, in many cases when it concerns what's best for you, it's wise for you to get counselors around you and just go with what they say. And it's wisest to trust God's word. Everything in it concerning God as our creator, our purpose in life, our hope in death, all culminates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he lives, then you can bank everything on what he says here. Ultimately, everything else is just speculation. It is. Life is just all theory and opinions. And those are based on fallible human logic with limited information from a limited perspective on this world and on history. We need a savior And if that Savior is actually going to give us life that we're made for, we won't find it in any person among us. Not ourselves, and not in money, and not in government, not in some corrupt religious system. That Savior is going to come from God. And we find him in the person of Jesus. So see the sign, hear the word, and entrust your life to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this clear, sufficient word and the grace that comes to us by faith. So we ask for your Spirit's help to believe now that we might have Christ and life in him. Do this, we pray, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.